Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. This episode of the Human Experience Podcast is brought to you by Fine Mindfulness. Mindfulness these days is huge. Mass media is starting to understand the benefits of taking time to pause and reflect. Have you ever been interested in mindfulness and meditation? Have you ever wanted to create a practice, but you just fall off track? Well, this is where Fine Mindfulness comes in. They offer a community that will help you create those powerful lasting habits that keep you training your mind. Whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a college student running a startup, Find Mindfulness can help you. Find Mindfulness is a 30-day program. How often are you looking at your cell phone? Just ask yourself how often you look at your cell phone and then tell yourself that you need to take this course. Mention the human experience. Go and sign up right now at www.findmindfulness.com. What's up, folks? It is so good to be back. We took a few weeks off and everyone needed some time off. And by everyone, I mean me. It's great to be back and we have an amazing episode for you guys. In this episode, we spoke to Dr. Rick Doblin, the very tenacious Rick Doblin, the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. In this episode, we cover a vast range of topics from Rick's personal journey to the political atmosphere of prohibition and the medical use of these compounds to treat PTSD and other illnesses. So the conversation is pretty far-reaching and you should stick through it. There is something about Rick's personality, his persona, that just makes you believe that this is possible, this will happen, and it's, it's really amazing the experience and wisdom that that comes through in this conversation. Also in this conversation, my friend Damiano R helped me co-host and you're going to he- be hearing more from him. It was, it was good because I noticed Damiano's work in the psychedelic field and I really respect what he's doing for the community. So he did great, very proud of him for his first co-host. Otherwise, there are some major changes coming for the podcast and some overhauls that we're, we're doing, but they're all good things and necessary. I think you guys will enjoy them. The DMT molecule, spirit molecule contest will go up. I'm still manicuring that and finishing the touches on that. I'm actually setting up the membership section for you guys where you will have access to a whole other level of content. So that's what I've been working on. We also picked up a sponsor for this episode. Very happy about that. This is a company that I personally vetted and I would never put anything in front of you, my listeners, that I didn't feel comfortable using myself. These companies that that may sponsor us are going to be companies that we personally vet. You can rely on that level of consistency from us, and we're never going to put something out there that is questionable. So thank you guys so much for all the support, the Facebook messages, telling us how amazing the podcast is. I love those. Send more of them. They definitely help the ego boost. It, it helps. But all joking aside, and without much further ado, here's our episode with Mr. Rick Doblin. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. The human experience is in session. My guest tonight is Mr. Rick Doblin. Damiano R. is going to be helping us co-host for this conversation. Rick, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really glad to be here with you today. So, Rick, I mean, you have founded this institution. Can you tell Can you please tell the audience who you are and what you do, please? Okay. Well, uh, I'm Rick Doblin, uh, Dr. Rick Doblin. You could say I got a PhD from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard on the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics and marijuana. So that was my dissertation. The PhD is in public policy. So I have a simultaneous training in working as um, a therapist. I've been trained with Stan Groff in the holotropic breath work, the hyperventilation for producing experiences similar to LSD and another of the classic psychedelics. And then my public policy training is about helping our culture that's had a bad trip with psychedelics get over that. So I started MAPS in 1986, uh, and the DEA had previously criminalized MDMA in 1985. And before that, I'd had another nonprofit in 1984 that we used with the um, psychedelic therapy community to sue the DEA to try to keep preserving the therapeutic use of MDMA. Around half a million doses had been used in therapeutic settings, personal growth settings, quietly under the name Adam. And so this was at the time of Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No program and the escalation of the drug war and the culture wars. and. It felt like at the time that the only way that there would be possible to bring the therapeutic use of MDMA and other psychedelics back was through the FDA, using science and medicine for healing purposes, and particularly trying to do it for healing purposes of people that the mainstream had sympathy for. And and so it's now been almost 30 years. Next year is the 30th year of MAPS. And we're, we're close, actually, a lot closer than we've ever been There's to moving through the FDA system. We're about to complete an international series of phase two pilot studies with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, we started these in 2000. Uh, the first one was in Spain for two years, and then it got shut down by the Madrid Anti-Drug Authority after there was some really positive media. And then we were able to start our first study in the U.S. in 2004. And so we're now anticipating that we can make MDMA into a prescription medicine by 2021. That's our you know, current time. Your attitude towards this is pretty remarkable considering the sort of opposition that you are facing with the American government and the legislation that you have to go through to get this type of research regulated and done. Um, I mean, how did you find yourself in a position to do this and how do you maintain this? <laughs> Great question. Um, well, I, I first decided what I wanted to do when I was 18 years old in 1972. I didn't know how, but I knew what. And over the last decades, you know, I'm now 61, um, I figured out a lot more about how. But what led me to that decision when I was 18 Part of it is that I had decided to become a draft resistor to Vietnam and anticipated going to prison for that. And when I shared this discussion, uh, I had a discussion about this with my parents, their attitude was that, you know, I'd never be able to get a normal job. And they, they weren't opposed to what I was saying. They just pointed out that, you know, with a criminal record, you know, I couldn't be a doctor or a lawyer or things like that. And so I thought, well, if the price of uh, having a normal mainstream job is being willing to go off to Vietnam and either kill people or get killed, um, it wasn't worth it. So I felt like, what am I going to do? But what really did it was the sense that in the war in Vietnam, that, that there was a lot of... Um, emotional calls to action by politicians 
but that it was fundamentally, a, you know, a terrible mistake. And previously, uh, growing up, my earliest um, influences in a political sense about the wide world was um, when I was pretty young, you know, 10, 12 years old, and really learning about the Holocaust. And I've got um, distant relatives that are killed in the Holocaust. I'm, is, I'm Jewish. I have Israeli relatives, and there were some of them involved in the uh, the War of 1948. And so I just was starting to grapple with this idea of cultures being uh, basically insane and, and, you know, projecting out their shadows onto others and trying to destroy and that those that there were psychological factors that were really crucial to survival. And so I, I grew up at a time when America was unquestionably the most powerful country in the world. You know, my dad was a doctor, so we had more than enough to eat and to travel. And so the survival needs were taken care of. But I was shaken by the possibility that, uh, you know, crazy cultures might want to come and kill me. And, you know, when you learn about Jewish history, it's like over and over and over, different kind of people want to kill the Jews. Then what radicalized me even more, or not even more, but especially was um, the Cuban Missile Crisis and this concept of um, the terrible, terrible power of nuclear weapons and how we were facing this incredible uh, escalation arms race with the Soviet Union and we possessed weaponry that could you know, destroy everybody on earth, not just Jewish people, but everybody. And that, that again, that there was this projecting the shadow outward, not to say that I would have preferred to live in Russia, which was you know, a totalitarian state, but that we ended up, um, I just felt like the, the survival of the human race is really unclear and it's based more on psychological factors than on resource questions. I mean, astonishing if you look at it that, you know, seven, eight billion people and we have enough, um, we, you know, if we were equitably distributing them, we, we have enough food and water. We are destroying the environment in a lot of different ways, which is another aspect of um, people being blind to certain externalities. So it, it just felt like, first off, the Holocaust, secondly, uh, the arms race, and then thirdly, the Vietnam War, that, that I got very interested in psychological factors. And then also I started thinking about um, certain kind of spiritual questions like, um, you know, are we fundamentally um, different than people that have a different color skin or a different religion or a different country? You know, the different ways that we identify ourselves are usually ways that we both have our own individual identity, but they also separate us from other people. And so I started thinking about if we really could understand our commonality, um, that that would have political implications. And I was sort of hearing that in the culture around me growing up in the late 60s. And you kind of hear about, um, you know, the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Band and the influence of LSD and all these things. But I was raised to believe that LSD made you permanently crazy. That if you took it, you know, you were basically um, going to have a very difficult time as an adult making your way in the world because you'd be off balance from LSD. And I was you know, raised to be scared of these substances until I read One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. And the book was fantastic. And a friend of mine said that some of that book was written while he was under the influence of LSD. So I, I really, um, you know, couldn't believe that. And that made me start questioning what I'd been told. And then um, as a college freshman in 1971, and then early in 72, starting to take LSD for the first time and seeing that what I'd been taught was bunches of propaganda and that there was this possibility of feeling more connected and not just fee thinking about it, but feeling it in a very deep and profound way. And I sort of woke up to the value of psychedelics as the backlash was um, coming down, backlash against the 60s, and drugs were criminalized, and research was shut down. And 
I felt like here's this tool that does seem to help people have the sense of connection. And then it has implications for everything, you know, for the environmental movement, for civil rights movement, for religious tolerance, for women's rights. It, it just felt like if you can focus on consciousness change towards opening towards spirituality. I mean, even what you're talking about, the human experience, if we can understand that the human experience is really of life and death and growth and love and children, that, that that's transcends all these other ways that we try to divide ourselves. And then, you know, the other part was growing up at a time of um, going to the moon and then eventually seeing the earth from moon, those you know, the pictures of the whole earth, um, it, it just felt like there was something fundamentally healing both individually and culturally and on a planetary basis of that kind of unitive experience. And for me, it didn't really come from my bar mitzvah. It, it really felt like the psychedelics were the way for me and also for many people. And so I felt, all right, I'm probably going to go to jail for being a draft resistor. I can't have a normal job. Um, but these tools have been demonized but by you the were, society. You were, ready, you were ready to go to jail over the MAPS Institute. And you, you were ready to do what you had to do to... I mean, is, is, that, is that an accurate... Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is even when I was 18. I mean, I didn't start MAPS, you know, for another 14 years. But the... The idea was that um, through my family, I felt like I could um, get survival support and that I was a counterculture drug-using criminal. That's how, at age 18, I identified myself. And I was willing to go to jail, and, and I thought that was happening. But, you know, sometimes you project... Um, omnipotence on the system when the system is just enormously complex and incompetent in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, you know, it turned out 60,000 people never registered for the draft. And, you know, people would shoot themselves in the foot or hurt themselves in any number of different ways or run away to Canada or do all sorts of things to get out of going to Vietnam. And the most simple thing if you just didn't send in your postcard at the very beginning to say, hey, I register for the draft, nothing happened. <laughs> it's like, you know, the emperor has no clothes in that way. And so that was a, a relief for me. And, you know, President Carter, the first day in office, pardoned all the draft resistors. So I feel like the arc of my life is trying to move from counterculture drug-using criminal to being a mainstream uh, drug-using uh, legal law-abiding citizen. And so, and so Doctor Doctor Dublin, um, it seems like you've you've touched on a lot on what psychedelics can offer the society, and you're definitely an expert, and you have changed the face of psychedelic research throughout your career. Um, and given the current trajectory of the research, where would you see psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy? Uh, in five years or 10 years or 20 years down the line? What's the future for this, uh, for this type of research? Okay, thank you for that question too. So we, we feel like right now, um, 2021 is when we'll have MDMA-assisted psychotherapy approved by FDA. Of course, we have to uh, you know, raise many, many millions of dollars and we have to train more therapists and the results of our studies have to turn out as we anticipate. But... Mm. In around five years, we think that, well, six years, we think that um, we'll have MDMA approved as a prescription medicine, and also the Hefter Research Institute will have psilocybin approved for people with uh, anxiety related to cancer. So once you get some medical permission for use of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, it's not going to be like a normal medicine. It's going to be only people with certain training are going to be able to prescribe it. And then it may also be limited, at least initially, to only certain kind of clinics. So like methadone, initially you had to go to clinics to get it or kidney dialysis centers. Because what we're saying to the FDA is that it's not the drugs that are the healing. It's the drug-assisted psychotherapy combination. So 
we're going to have to create contexts that are like the research context that combine pharmacology, the drugs, and the psychotherapy. So then I think starting in 2021, we're going to be establishing a network of psychedelic clinics. And I think um, other people will be able to start their own clinics. It's not like we're going to have a monopoly on these clinics. And they'll eventually these clinics will be not just an MDMA clinic or a psilocybin clinic. They'll be people that are cross-trained in how to administer MDMA or how to administer psilocybin. And these clinics, the best model for that so far in history for me is the hospice centers. So in 1974 was the first hospice where people could have a different approach towards dying outside of a hospital where their pain is taken care of, but they're no, no longer being um, medicalized, trying to just extend their life one more day. They're just being permitted to die in a more graceful way. So by 2024, by, by excuse me, um, 2004, 30 years later, there was 3,500 hospice centers. So I think once we get psychedelics approved as prescription medicines in 2021, then there'll be a period of 10, 20 years of the clinics spreading um, throughout America and Europe and elsewhere in the world. And then I think we're going to have a population that's really educated properly, that understands the risks and benefits, and then we'll start moving towards um, really fully ending prohibition and ending this whole concept that um, the government should step in between you and whether you take a certain you substance. Know, I, I love this vision. I love what you're, t you're talking about, and I, I, I agree with it. And there does seem to be this sort of ayahuasca movement that I see happening with psychedelics yes. and people who are waking yes. up to Good that. Um, but just to bounce around, because I, I kind of want to explore your journey and this, the battles and internal things for you. What do you think, in your opinion, was the hardest thing that you had to overcome in this journey that you're on? Well, in a way, the hardest is that um, I identified being a counterculture drug using criminal. And so trying to think of myself as not somebody on the outside, you know, raising this issue that everything would be better if, if psychedelics were just legal and available to people, but starting to think of myself as part of um, the mainstream. Because I, I care, and I, I see that a lot now, too. As circumstances are changing, you know, ayahuasca has spread throughout the society. A lot of its use is technically not religious. Uh, so it's technically not legal, but still it's being used by people throughout the culture. And, and people's attitudes are changing dramatically. And trying to think about what is the goal? I mean, I think part of the 60s was Timothy Leary, the whole counterculture that, you know, that there was something essentially radical about psychedelics and psychedelic users challenging the status quo, and it could never really be incorporated into society. And so I bought into that initially. You know, I was going to be an underground psychedelic therapist and try to bring it back, but I didn't know that that would be possible. So I think um, sort of letting go of that romantic, rebellious idea that I'm the one on the outside that knows the right thing to do, that's been really difficult. The, the other part for me that's been um, difficult is learning how to be patient, that there's just so much resistance and, and has been for so long to sustain the focus, I've had to really do a fundamental sort of mental trick, I guess, to say, which is that instead of, um, I, I first get really frustrated about things I would do and I would be shut down and you know efforts I would try that would be blocked. And then I had to redefine success. And so success for me became trying what I thought was most important and trying my best. And whether it worked or not, it's beyond me. It's, it's a big cultural issue and it's dependent upon so many other factors out of my control. But if my success was dependent upon um, actually achieving what I was trying for, I would have been frustrated and burned out a long time ago. So figuring that out, that, that just trying hard and trying as best I could 
and not so much being attached to the outcomes and just thinking, at least in my own little life, this is what I'm trying, this is what I value, and that's all I can do. And at the end of the day, if I was happy of what I did that day, then whether the work was on something that was being blocked or not, that um, it was still a successful day. There was one time about um, 15 years ago where I was so frustrated that I just had to um, stop work for a week and paint my house. <laughs> and I was just so glad that I could do something that, you know, I could see that I was actually making a difference. And, you know, I'd go to bed at, the, at night and I'd say, yeah, okay, I painted this wall. Or I did. So after that week of painting the house, I kind of recovered my mood and was able to go back and start trying to get permission again for psychedelic research. Dr. Doblin, around the same uh, around the same lines of what you were just talking about, about wanting to be an underground psychedelic therapist when you were younger, um, I'm sure there are a lot of people in their 20s now that are also going through that phase with this resurgence of psychedelic research. Uh, but it seems like now you have created kind of a framework for those people to be able to actually get careers in those in, in the psychedelic research field. So what would you what would you like to tell the the generation, the next generation of people that want to become psychedelic researchers and what they what they would have to do in a way? To, uh, to get into that, that specific uh, career path. Wow. That's a, yeah, well, I, I think first time, and you realize this, but that maybe a lot of people don't realize that there's been roughly 50 years of work since, say, 1965 to make it so that the young generation, you're now the first generation in 50 years that if you want to have an above-ground career in psychedelic research, psychedelic psychotherapy, that you have that possibility. It's incredible how long it's taken, but that you are a generation that really can imagine an above-ground career in this field. So then the second thing to say is that in order to make psychedelics into medicines, it's a very narrow pathway. And the FDA basically is saying you need to prove safety and efficacy but you don't need to know how it works. You don't need mechanism of actions to make a drug into a medicine. So we're focusing mostly on um, studies in patients and other groups as well. But there is a whole area of neuroscience and how these drugs actually work and how consciousness is structured so that there's many, many different ways that people could become involved if they wanted to. And one of the most important, I think, is therapeutic because we have so many billions of people that are traumatized at just life itself. The, even people that are, you know, born into healthy, loving families. You know, my aunt died of cancer when I was four years old. You know, everybody is exposed to certain kind of traumas, and and then we all need therapy in different ways. So I think. Trying to become a psychedelic therapist is uh, the kind of training you should get is just learning how to do regular psychotherapy and particularly psychotherapies that involve um, emotional expression rather than emotional suppression. Um, and also, so there's a lot of value in cognitive behavioral therapy, but and, and parts of that are used in psychedelic psychotherapy. But it goes beyond just changing your ideas. So I think that people who want careers in psychedelic psychotherapy could look at um, the holotropic breathwork, hyperventilation, a technique developed by Stan Groff, gestalt therapy. Um, there's, there's a whole range of um, ways for people to learn about psychotherapy. But then there's the neuroscience. So if people want to really start piecing apart what is consciousness and how does psychedelics help us understand that, um, that's a whole area of research. There, there's an incredible study ring, being done right now in Switzerland that's combining science, psychotherapy, and um, Zen meditation. So for people that are interested in meditation techniques, there's this research is being done now where lifelong meditators are being given brain scans at the University of Zurich before and after receiving participating in about an eight-day Zen meditation retreat during which time they'll get um, psilocybin 
and then they'll be evaluated for compassion, altruism, how it affects their meditation practice, and what it does to their brains. So there's this enormous um, potential of science and religion coming together, science, religion, meditation, spirituality. So people who want to even like pastoral counseling or want to focus on meditation, um, there's opportunities to do that. You know, or even from a business point of view, how do you run these psychedelic clinics? You know, it, it's not the same as a bed and breakfast, but we, we kind of joke that our research is like psychedelic bed and breakfast. <laughs> because, you know, we, we have uh, eight-hour psychedelic therapy sessions with a male-female co-therapist team, and then we require the patients to spend the night in the treatment facility. And then that's for them to have time out, to reflect, to integrate. And then the next day, we serve them breakfast. And But then there's more hours with the psychotherapist to try to So the way it, it should be done. So, yeah, that's ideal. That's the way to get the most out of it. And, and even if you, people are doing it in recreational contexts, if you can give yourself the next day to rest and reflect and think it over... It's like an enormous gift to yourself to focus not just on the experience, but on the integration of the experience. So there's going to be thousands eventually of these psychedelic clinics, and there'll be all sorts of um, opportunities for different types of careers. And, and part of this understanding that psychedelics is bringing to us is about the mind-body connection, that it's really not so separate, and that... Um, before MDMA was illegal in the late 70s, early 80s, there were people that were doing um, MDMA massage and focusing on emotional expression. So they, there's these like uh, syncretic careers, you could imagine, of people that learn about massage. And a lot of times during massage sessions, you know, there'll be tensions in the body that that when you release them, there's kind of an emotional aspect to it. And when you do a massage, when people are under the influence of MDMA um, or, you know, medium dose LSD or, or things like that, people are sort of supported and nurtured to get deep down into their psyche and then let out these kind of feelings. Hmm. So there'll be that kind of combination, you know, mind-body work that I think there's opportunities for people to to get involved in doing that and and even you know people just in terms of rituals to try to create when people are under the influence and and we've got a lot of um thousands of years of I, we're, we are jumping around here and you you're you're kind of a segue artist you kind of move through the conversation which is good um but who would you say, in your opinion, and we're, we're approaching the end, so uh, who would you say, in your opinion, is the most influential person for you in, in your life? Hmm. Well, I would have to say my parents and Stan Groff. And why? Well, my, my parents, well, okay, I'll say why for Stan Groff. So when I was, uh, Stan Groff, for those who are not familiar with his work, Stanislav Grof is um, 84 years old now. He's still alive. He was a uh, born in the Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, and he wanted to become a psychiatrist. And in the 50s, he was working as a psychiatric resident in a clinic where Sandoz Pharmaceuticals from Switzerland sent a bunch of LSD and said, hey, this is incredible stuff. Um, it could be useful in the training of therapists, because they'll get a temporary sense of what it's like to be insane. That's how they saw LSD. Or it could possibly have therapeutic applications. And so Stan ended up becoming the world's expert on the use of LSD-assisted psychotherapy. And he helped found transpersonal psychology, which is a field that's um, an outgrowth of humanistic psychology, humanistic psychology being about the human potential and self-actualization, and then transpersonal psychology, being about self-transcendence and the more spiritual aspects. And so when I was um, 17 years old at college and started trying to do LSD, and then I turned 18, and I, I really didn't have the emotional capability to handle it properly. I, I wasn't able to let my emotions flow. Uh, I had a lot of scary experiences. I had an intimation that this was really helpful and useful and it was healing a split that our society was 
way overdeveloped intellectually and underdeveloped emotionally and spiritually, and so was I. And so LSD was kind of this tool of healing. And But I went to the guidance counselor at my college and said, I, I'm really having a very difficult time with these trips, and I'm not sure if I want to stay in college. And he said, here's a book by Stan Groff that I suggest you read. And it was a manuscript copy, before it had even been published, of a book called Realms of the Human Unconscious. And when I read that, it all came together for me because this was science, this was healing, this was spirituality, and it had the reality testing of therapy. Are people actually getting better? And so I thought um, I would reach out. And I actually wrote a letter to Stan in 1972, and he even replied back to me. And that's kind of inspires me to try to answer all my mail as well because um, – Stan said that there were no opportunities. The research was shut down. I, I took a, a workshop with Stan in the summer of 72, a five-day workshop, and just got really inspired. And then later in the 80s, uh, Stan, after the crackdown on LSD happened, uh, he and his wife, Christina, were able to develop a non-drug technique through hyperventilation to keep the work going and to keep explaining about the use of non-ordinary states of consciousness. And, you know, I just was with Stan. Um, I took him to Israel for the first time in his life. We had a three-week tour through Israel where he's doing breathwork workshops and lectures, and he's just been through uh, China and through South America. So Stan has been my sort of intellectual, spiritual mentor throughout um, my life ever since I was 18. And I'd say my parents, because when, you know, I'm the oldest of four kids. Um, I was the first one, obviously, to go to college. And then in my middle of my first year, I was like, I want to drop out and study LSD. And I asked them to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> and the, my dad was particularly impressive because he said, I think you're making a mistake, but I think if I don't help you, you're going to stick with it longer than you should just to prove to me that it's not a mistake. And so if I help you to do this, you're going to realize it's a mistake sooner. And then he said, you know, and maybe just a shred of doubt I have, maybe you know what's best for you. And so I found that I had this kind of unconditional love from my parents that even though I was going in a complete different direction that they didn't want me to go in, they still helped me. And so I feel like, you know, both my father and Stan and my mother, you know, really helped me forge this whole direction of my life. So it, it seems like you've really uh, given your life to uh, psychedelic research. Uh, now, going back to uh, the data itself uh, regarding the, the success rate of this type of therapy in comparison to conventional therapy for post-traumatic stress or, or something like that, would you be able to tell us what the data tells us about that success rate? Um, when yeah. It comes to psychedelic. Yeah. Well, the the first thing to say is that we only because for political and scientific reasons, the only people that we have studied in our various research projects around the world for MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, the only people we've studied are those people that have already failed to achieve relief with currently legal available options. So they're called right. chronic treatment resistant PTSD hmm. patients. We, we start with the hardest cases because if you can show that you're helping the hardest cases, that makes an even stronger argument. argument. Right. So our first study was 21 people, mostly women survivors of childhood sexual abuse and adult rape and assault. And they had had PTSD for an average of over 19 and a half years. And they had failed on both psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy. And at the end of our study over 80% of them no longer had PTSD. It was just wow. remarkable. And people were astonished at the results. Um, our current study, now the, another part is that the currently available, uh, well, we did a three and a half year follow-up study after. So the question is, do people just take psychedelics, MDMA in particular, or they have this beautiful experience, and then for a certain kind of time, there's an afterglow and you know, when that fades, then their problems come back. Or does something fundamental happen while they're under the influence of MDMA that really changes their brains and changes their attitudes? And the only way you can really tell that is through a long-term follow-up. 
So once we completed the study, we did a long-term follow-up, and it was an average of three and a half years after the last MDMA session. And only one of these people had gone on to do MDMA on their own and said to us that, that she would never do that again because it was um, not the safe supportive contact she had experienced during the therapy. And what we found is that after three and a half years, on average, the PTSD symptoms had even declined a tiny bit more. Now, some of those people had relapsed, meaning a few of them had had trauma in their life that caused them to reestablish these unhealthy patterns of PTSD, which meant that the rest of the group got even better. And so we've gone back to the FDA and we said, could you um, give us permission to give an extra MDMA session to these people that were traumatized? And they said yes. And um, two out of those three got better again without having PTSD. So that's the results from our first study. And the normal uh, treatments for PTSD, uh, the, the non-drug therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, prolonged exposure, cognitive reprocessing therapy, there's, there's a series of non-drug psychotherapies. And they have um, a pretty good success rate of 40 to 50% or so, but they have a very high dropout rate too. A large number of people, again, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40-50% can't do the therapy because when you start talking about the trauma, it's just re-traumatizing. It's too painful. So we've now just finished a new study. Uh, the first study, as I mentioned, mostly in women. This study now mostly in men. It's 24 subjects and it's veterans, firefighters, and police officers with chronic treatment-resistant PTSD. We didn't think that we would actually get any firefighters or police officers. We knew we could get veterans because there were so many veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan with PTSD. But for political reasons, we said, okay, we're going to say it's also for first responders, firefighters and police officers. In the end, we did get um, 20 veterans, three firefighters, including one who was uh, from New York who was involved in 9-11, and one police officer. And we only had two people drop out of the study. And so that's a much, much lower dropout rate. But the reason that one of them dropped out is that after one session, and this was even 75 milligrams, they felt so much better they didn't need to be in the rest of the study. So they dropped out because they were cured. And then the other person that dropped out was somebody who got the low dose. So we're comparing high dose, medium dose, and low dose. And this person got the low dose. And what we found is 25 or 30 milligrams um, has an anti-therapeutic effect. You kind of get activated a little bit, but your fear of difficult emotions is not reduced. So we have a tremendously low dropout rate. And more and more what people are um, using, um, scientists um, and statisticians, are using a measure called effect size. And so that's the... Because if you have a very small effect, but a very large number of subjects you can get statistically significant results. So statistical significance has been the measure that has been mostly used, and a lot of people know about, oh, this was statistically significant or not. But that doesn't tell you the, the depth of the experience of the therapeutic benefits. Right. And effect size is a new measure. So we've looked at all of our studies, and now we've, we've completed studies in Switzerland, two in the U.S. We've got two more going. Um, in, or one more going in the U.S. and Canada and Israel. And our effect size is over one, which means it's a very large effect size. So the statistics are great. And we're, we're about to, um, in early 2016, go to FDA and say, we would like you to consider this a breakthrough therapy. And breakthrough therapies are for serious or life-threatening diseases for which there's a patient population that other available techniques have not helped. So that'll be both science and politics, whether we'll get breakthrough therapy. But the, the, the clinical results that we're getting justify, in our view, breakthrough therapy. And the effect sizes are large. And the safety profile is great. So I should add that you know we hear stories about people overheating at raves. They take MDMA, they overheat, and they die. And sadly, that does happen. Um, and 
it's fundamentally different, though, the risk profile in a clinical setting. So, uh, so, been- so, so Dr. Dublin, um, around, around those lines, um, you know, there are people that, you know, hearing about this research will go out and try to engage with these experiences in a uh, non-clinical setting. What would you say is the best way to equip those people uh, to better engage with those experiences using psychedelics in a non-clinical setting? Well, we have what's called the treatment manual that describes our therapeutic approach and tries to standardize it. And that's posted for free on the MAPS website. So I think if people can understand how these drugs are used in therapy, that will be really effective. The, the other thing, sadly to say, is that our, our government approach, our system of prohibition, which is falling apart, but it's still in existence, is a harm maximization system. The, desi- the, the purpose of these war on drugs is to make life worse for the drug users so people won't want to do it. And one of the main ways is that people no longer can have any confidence that if something is sold as MDMA or ecstasy or molly, it may have no MDMA in it at all. And so I think the people have to be equipped with a healthy degree of skepticism and doubt about what it is that they're actually getting and what they think they're getting may be completely different. So um, ecstasydata.org is a project uh, run by Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D.org and DanSafe, MAPS helped start it. Um, so there's a way to send in pills to be analyzed. Um, so I think that's a big part. But the other part to equip people is to really recognize that what your attitude is makes a big difference. So that if you look at these experiences as just a party drug just for fun, the same right. as you know whether it's MDMA or LSD or anything like that, that part of the psyche is um, working through difficult issues that it's not like when people have what's called people sometimes call it a bad trip you know and think they just got unlucky it's inevitable and people that are working with their psyche with psychedelics you will inevitably have challenging difficult things and that's actually to be welcomed that's instead of suppressed now it's coming to the surface but if your attitude is i only want to have a good time i'm only doing this for fun when something difficult comes if you try to suppress it it makes it worse Right, it's very much the difference between a bad trip and a hard trip, right? That's exactly one of the things that we say about our, so we have a Zendo project that works at Burning Man and other festivals around the world to try to help people uh, who have difficult experiences with psychedelics. And one of our principles is difficult is not the same as bad. Right. And so if you go to our website and look at the Zendo project, the psychedelic harm reduction, there's a lot of principles there that apply to therapy, but also to taking these out of therapeutic settings. Hmm. Yeah. Rick, I sincerely appreciate your time, sir. You are a very cool person. Um, where can, (laughs) where can people find more about maps and, and find, find you? Well, um, one of the ways is through our website, maps.org. And you know, what's pretty hilarious is around 1994, um, maps was, um, about, I think it was like number six, 600 website in the whole world. And this, this fella called me up and he said that he'd had this tragic situation of his son, um, dying in a motorcycle crash. And the only way he could work through that, he found MDMA pretty helpful and he wanted to, um, donate and give back and he wanted to give maps a website. Hmm. And my first response was, what's a website? (laughs) Yeah. So, so we've been accumulating information on our website, uh, you know, for more than 20 years. So we have an enormous wealth of information on maps.org, and I suggest that people go to that. There, there's also a list of conferences and events that are taking place. Um, we've had large international conferences that we call Psychedelic Science in 2010 and 2013. We're going to have another big one in April of 2017 where we bring psychedelic researchers from all over the world, and this will be in Oakland, California. And, you know, I make various public talks around the country and around the world, and all of that people could learn about on the MAPS website. And we also have a free email newsletter that comes out about once a month that you could sign up for, or our Facebook page. And we have an incredibly talented uh, social media team. 
So there's all sorts of information available on our Facebook page and our Twitter. And, you know, we try to really recognize that while the therapy is crucial and we're trying to, you know, make MDMA and other psychedelics and marijuana into prescription medicines, the public education part is really the most crucial because the attitude of the public either will produce support for politicians who want to suppress this or support for politicians and regulators who want to open the door. And I think that um, there's, uh, just as a, an example though, Marie Claire, the women's magazine, mm-hmm. we're, we're particularly reaching out to, to women and mothers and families because they have a lot of fears about their children. And this September issue with uh, Miley Cyrus on the cover it's just starting to hit newsstands. It has a terrific article about our MDMA PTSD research. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think you know we're we're breaking into these sort of mainstream um, media outlets, and they're actually saying positive things instead of um, you know let's suppress all of this. So the culture is changing, but I really think it's in the hands of young people as to whether this is really going to produce a society where we've integrated psychedelics and the experiences that they produce because really it's not about psychedelics it's about ourselves and psychedelics are just doorways into ourselves and into our deeper spiritual selves and the world is coming together it's a time of globalization it's a time where we need global spirituality we need to replace fundamentalism with mysticism and if um, and it's clear that my generation we've made some openings but we're not going to be able to see it all the way through and so that's where I'm so encouraged that the younger generations will um, come to appreciate this and maybe some people will also devote their lives to psychedelic psychotherapy and and to these kind of nurturing experiences to help our human race you know find a way to survive on this planet rather than destroy it yeah a lot to think about and i think that anyone listening to this program is in the the direction of what you're saying rick i I truly appreciate your time uh Damiano, do you want anything to say here at the end, man? Uh, well, just thank you so much. I I actually got to meet you in San Francisco uh, at the uh, uh, Stanislav Grof's uh, book launch, and it was yeah. uh, it was a pleasure. So it's, it's great to spend an hour with you. Thank you so much for for giving us this opportunity. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm so glad uh, that uh, you gave me this opportunity to reach out to a whole new group. This of is people. the human experience. My name is Xavier, and we will see you guys next week.